Hey folks, welcome to the Great Conversations Podcast. I'm your host, Calvin Smith, and this is where we discuss five big topics, the gospel, relevance, evangelism, apologetics, and training for Christians, all in relation to the truth of God's word in Genesis as the seedbed of all Christian doctrines. Now, what we're going to be covering here today is smoking gun evidence, proof positive that the so-called Christian ministry, Biologos, is actually a false teaching organization, according to their own words, versus biblical standards. Now, I know that's quite a a statement, but I, I highly encourage you to watch part one and two of this series called Biologos is a False Teaching Organization if you haven't seen them yet, as they lay out some critical information that you're going to need to, to know to, to understand to, uh, how I establish the veracity of my claim here. Because accusing an organization or an individual of, of the charge of false teacher is deadly serious, and, and I'd be very hesitant to do so unless I thought that there was incontrovertible evidence supporting such a claim. So in part three, we're going to ask and answer this question. Has Biologus contributors, have, have Biologus contributors admitted that they believe the New Testament writers believed the literal Genesis, but were wrong? You see, a flawed way for biologists to attempt to justify themselves against the charge of false teaching would be to say that the New Testament writers sincerely believed the people and events of Genesis um, and those that those writers referenced were real, but were in fact wrong about what they believed. But that would mean that biologists is doing exactly what Paul warns about in Romans 16, that they're teaching contrary to what the New Testament writers taught, which by definition is false teaching. So have biologist contributors admitted that they believe the New Testament writers believed a literal Genesis, but were wrong? Yes, they have. And although there are uh, many, we only need to demonstrate uh, a few examples to prove the point. And we're going to begin to do so with Dr. Peter Enns, who has several articles and interviews on the Biologist website. And Interestingly, far from embracing historical Christianity, like the Biologos website declares, the top of Dr. Ann's blog page says he's rethinking biblical Christianity. Anyway, in his book, The Evolution of Adam, Enns wrote the following regarding Adam as the first human. Still as I see it, the scientific evidence we have for humans or, human origins and the literally literary evidence we have for the nature of ancient stories of origins are so overwhelmingly persuasive that belief in a first human, such as Paul understood him, is not a viable option. So notice, Enns admits that the Apostle Paul believed that Adam was the first literal human, yet Enns teaches contrary. And he goes on to say this, evolution demands that the special creation of the first Adam as described in the Bible is not literally historical. I mean, here's an even more clarifying admission that Adam was the specially created literal historical first human. I mean, why else would Enns refers to this creation of man as, as described in the Bible? It also demonstrates the true authority that ends, uh, drives ends so-called theology when he declares evolution demands. And I guess when evolution demands, its followers must unquestioningly obey, even if the Bible objects, apparently. Now, this is further confirmation that prior to the popularity of evolution, no one would have any reason to conclude with ends than Biologos that Adam wasn't a real historical person, just as Genesis and the New Testament teach. Therefore, ends teaches contrary to the New Testament writers. 
In addition, in his chapter uh, on evolution in the Sin of Certainty uh, book, Enz again admits the validity of Genesis when he says, the problem for biblically centered Christians is that the Bible, right in the very beginning, tells us clearly that God created all life forms with a simple let there be. No common descent, natural selection, or billions of years required. But N says that he believes in an evolutionary understanding of common descent and natural selection over billions of years, which means that he's not a biblically centered Christian by his own admission. Again, he admits that the literal Genesis creation is biblical and commonly understood, yet he doesn't believe it. Now, in another Biologos article, he says this, most Christians understand that even though the Bible assumes a certain way of looking at the cosmos, from a scientific point of view, the Bible is wrong. For Paul, Adam certainly seems to be the first person created from dust and Eve was formed from him. I mean, did you catch that? He admits that Paul's belief in a literal Adam, but Paul was wrong. So according to Paul's warnings in Romans 16, ends identifies himself as a false teacher who should be avoided in the church. But is he the only biologist contributor to fall into this category? Sadly, no, he isn't. Dennis Lamoureux, I uh, mentioned earlier in my last episode, is also a, a major contributor to the Biologist website. And in one of his articles, he makes the following statement. The greatest problem with evolutionary creation is that it rejects the traditional literal interpretation of the opening chapters of Scripture. Even more troubling for evolutionary creation is the fact that the New Testament writers, including Jesus himself, refers to Genesis 1-11 to as literal history. Matthew 19, 4 to 6, Romans 5, 12 to 14, Hebrews 4, 4 to 7, 2 Peter 2, 4 to 5. Therefore, the burning question is, how do evolutionary creationists interpret the, the chapters of the early chapters of Holy Scripture? Notice his clear admission that Biologos' stance on creation is in direct opposition to the traditional interpretation of the Christian church, despite their declaration that they embrace traditional Christianity. I mean, their, their embrace seems more like a hug goodbye than any kind of close relationship with, with Scripture. And again, I, I can't emphasize it enough. Notice that Lamro rejects a plain reading uh, interpretation of Genesis, yet admits that the apostles and Jesus himself referred to Genesis as literal history, making him a false teacher according to New Testament standards. But as they say, wait, there's more. What about Dr. Carl Giberson? Giberson has been a major contributor to Biologus from its inception, having co-written the book, The Language of, uh, of Science and Faith, straight answers to um, genuine questions with, with Francis Collins, available on the Biologus website. And in his book, uh, Giberson's book, Saving the Original Sinner, Giberson admits that the Bible describes Adam and Eve as historical figures, the fall as a real event, and so forth. Yet he also explains why he teaches evolutionary science. Genetic evidence has made it clear that Adam and Eve cannot have been historical figures, at least as described in the Bible. More scientifically informed evangelicals within the conservative traditions are admitting that the evidence is undermining creation, fall, redemption theology. <laughs> it's no wonder, then that Giberson references Ian Barber 
as a major influence in his and Biologos' attempt to reconcile science and religion. An end note on one of his articles says this, all such conversations take the seminal work of Ian Barber as the starting point. Barber, arguably the first true scholar of science and religion, identified four ways that science and religion could relate. His analysis first appeared in 1988 and was expanded in 1990 with his influential Gifford lectures. Okay, so what then was Barber's opinions on this matters? Quote, you simply can't any longer say as traditional Christians that death was God's punishment for sin. Death was around long before human beings. Death is a necessary aspect of an evolutionary world. One generation has to die for new generations to come into being. In a way, it's more satisfying than to see it as a sort of arbitrary punishment that God imposed on our primeval paradise. Now understand, Giberson has admitted and revealed that his adoption of Barber's position, uh, he, he embraces it wholeheartedly. He, he references his pushback from the evangelical community because of his attempt to redefine biblical terms to make them fit with the story of evolution. He said, I suggested that what is labeled theologically as sin remains as, uh, a, a useful insight into human nature even after we abandon a historical Adam, his fall, and the original sin he passed on to us. The story of Adam is thus the story of every man, unable to, re to resist temptation, ignoring the better angels of his nature. Adam and Eve, as described in Genesis, cannot have been historical figures. Recent work in genetics has established this unsettling conclusion beyond any reasonable doubt. So, again, notice here that although Biologos paints itself as embracing traditional Christianity, all the while embracing major influencers like Barber and Giberson, who contradict the church and God's word, they are truly sheep in wolves' clothing. Now, if that wasn't enough, and remember that all of these people contribute to the Biologos website and are considered part of their collective, let's examine a quote from another of their contributors, professing evangelical Kenton Sparks. If Jesus as a finite human being erred from time to time, there's no reason at all to, uh, to suppose that Moses, Paul, John wrote scripture without error. Rather, we are wise to assume that the biblical authors express themselves as human beings writing from the perspectives of their own finite, broken horizons. I mean, a breakdown of a blasphemous statement like that seems almost unnecessary. And yet, for the sake of argument, I'll point out a few things here. The fact that Sparks suggests that Jesus erred from time to time is blasphemous indeed on many levels. Because Jesus himself declared, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me, sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. That's John 12, 49. So if Jesus spoke what the father said and yet erred, then the father must have erred and so cannot be the God of the Bible, the Alpha and the Omega, who knows everything. I mean, error can only be spoken by someone who doesn't have all, all knowledge or is being deliberately misleading. And if God knowingly erred, then he's not the God of the Bible because God is not a man that he should lie. And if Jesus is not God, then he can't forgive our sins and he's not the unblemished, perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
Sparks' statement is a deconstruction of the gospel and the concept of biblical inerrancy, as well as Christ's deity. If Jesus, Paul, John, and every other author of the Bible did not write without error, how could we ever know what truth was? Which parts of the Bible could be trusted with absolute certainty? How would we ever know if we're saved or not? Yet Jesus and the apostles all taught that the Bible was authoritative, with Jesus himself frequently prefacing his teaching with statements like, have you not read, and it is written, both clear indications of his submission to the authority of the word of God. Paul taught, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3. 16 and 7. How could scripture be useful in teaching spiritual or moral truths if it were possible that any portion might be tainted with error? Why would Jesus quote Moses if Moses have, may have written error into the body of scripture? Why would Jesus have said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John 5, 46 and 47. And, and Hebrews 1 to 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty uh, in heaven. You see, I again want to emphasize, if BioLogos contributors can suggest that Jesus the exact representation of who God is, Hebrews 1 to 3, made errors, then God has made errors. And it would be logically consistent to assume that Jesus was not divine, which destroys the gospel. Because if Jesus isn't divine, then his earthly human sacrifice couldn't and didn't pay for the sins of mankind. And these are the types of blasphemous concepts iterated throughout the Biologos group and the teachers that they promote. Notice in this next quote how Sparks contradicts Jesus and the other New Testament writers when he urges readers to let evolutionary interpretations of science guide our interpretations of Scripture. And he says this, The verdict is in. One way or another, it is not a good idea to use the book of Genesis as a guide for our modern scientific queries, or even to expect it to enter into modern scientific conversation. Rather, our science should be deduced mainly by carefully studying God's word and by receiving the result as a word from God and as evidence of his majesty and creativity. I freely admit this conclusion leaves us with more theological work to do. We still have the apparent problem that death entered the cosmos before human beings existed, and also the pressing question of how the Adam of Genesis, and more importantly of Romans, should be understood in light of theological orthodoxy and the evolutionary process. Which means, again, Sparks is a false teacher. He teaches in contradiction to what the apostles and Jesus taught. Now, I know you probably thinking we're done here, right? I mean, what more proof do we need? Well, let's examine one more of their contributors, one fellow called Joseph Blankard, an incredibly incriminating article from Bankard, who teaches philosophy at a Christian university, posted on the Biologus website, demonstrates that despite their professed commitment to traditional Christian belief, 
Any and all Christian doctrines are open season to interpretation because of their evolutionary views. Its preface states this. This post, in part, is part of a series of perspectives on how to understand the atoning work of Christ in light of evolutionary science. Readers are encouraged to browse this series introduction by Jim Stump for an explanation of how Biologos approaches these sorts of issues. Here we feature the thoughts of theologian Joseph Bankard. We want to encourage our readers to approach his ideas with an open mind. And even if you disagree with him, we hope it stimulates you to think more deeply about how to integrate science and scripture in a faithful way. Now, before I start here, Bankard, of course, assumes that there was no literal Adam who committed a literal original sin and therefore is willing to totally reinterpret the atoning work of Christ's death on the cross of Calvary because of it. So he argues the following. Check this out. How does the view I've sketched differ from substitutionary atonement? First, the incarnation is not primarily about the cross. God does not send Jesus to die. God does not require Jesus' death in order to forgive humanity's sin. As a result, God is not motivated by retribution or righteous anger. Instead, the incarnation is motivated by love. God wanted humanity to know him in a new and robust way. God wanted to be present to humanity in the midst of its sin and isolation. God desires right relationship. As a demonstration of God's immense love and compassion, God takes on flesh and bone. He becomes a vulnerable child relying on humans for his very need. He learns what it is to hunger and thirst. He experiences torture, humiliation, and isolation on the cross. In the end, Jesus experiences death, and in doing so, Christ connects to humanity in new and powerful way. His compassion both shows us the way of our salvation, revelation, and inspires us to follow after him. I argue that God did not will the cross. Christ's death was not part of God's divine plan. Of course, this flies in the face of biblical revelation in Acts 2, Acts 4, where it says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attest to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's Acts 2, 22 to 23. For truly in this city they were gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. And Bankard summarizes his big idea and reveals his motivation for considering such a heretical view of Christ's sacrifice by saying this. The view sketched above does not require a historical Adam and Eve or a traditional concept of original sin, making it more compatible with evolution. And in his effort to overturn an essential doctrine of Christianity, Bankard clearly reveals himself as a false teacher. You see, inevitably, Biologos' teaching lead to a faith that has little to do with Christianity, but everything to do with a naturalistic, pagan, and secular view of life. 
And a clear example of this is from Biologos' own Carl Giberson, who testifies that by his third year in college, he was now wearing scientific spectacles almost all of the time. And as a result, non-evolutionary explanations for life looked a little too convenient to me. Giberson writes that he had come to the point where by definition, nothing could ever be explained by reference to God. So no wonder the atheist William Provine once commented that one can have a religious view that is compatible with evolution only if the religious view is indistinguishable from atheism. Folks, no matter how much Christian charity and grace we want to extend to other believers, no matter where you are in your belief about Genesis, all Christians need to be understanding and and calling biologists to account The conclusion that the Biologos group as a whole promotes heretical teaching is incontrovertible. Paul's command in Romans 16 is abundantly clear that cutting off false teachers is a biblical mandate. Therefore, once they've been identified, believers no longer have an excuse to associate with them whatsoever. Now, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. That's Romans 16, verse 17. The Christian community should should distance itself from biologos, supporters, contributors, and any true believers in Christ associated with the biologos organization should repent and disassociate themselves and denounce the heretical views espoused by this group or else be truly guilty by association. The church has to consider the absolute seriousness of this matter. Some of the most influential Christian leaders contribute to Biologos, and Biologos speakers are regularly invited into Bible colleges, seminaries, Christian homeschool events, and churches under the guise of intellectual discourse within the church. And this has to stop, because Christians are commanded by Paul to avoid them. Why, why bring a group into, in, into a Christian setting that openly attacks the truth of God's word and the gospel itself? Christians have to confront contributors and supporters of Biologos with their heresy. This is a serious warning to anyone professing faith in Christ. Professing believers should consider Christ's warnings concerning false teachers and the devastation that their teaching causes. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 13 to 20. Believers need to understand that despite this droning mantra from evolutionists who declare that evidence for naturalism is overwhelming, the facts we all observe in God's world are far better interpreted according to a plain reading of God's word. For example, Proverbs uh, 8, 8 to 9, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, then according to the story of evolution. 
You know, even as a biologist author himself admits, the evidence for evolution is not readily visible. Rather, evolutionists tell us that it's only through well-informed familiarity with the details of the evidence, the fossils, the distribution of, and the variety of living species, the biochemistry, the ecological issues, the genetic evidence, etc., that one can see how convincing the evidence for evolution actually is. Because most of us will never be able to see this evidence for ourselves, we are forced to decide whose testimony to believe. On one side, we have practically all scientists and also many confessing Christians, including even many evangelical Christians, who attest to the cogency of evolution as an explanation of the evidence. And on the other side, we have the testimony of fundamentalist science, which represents a small minority of the scientific community. Well, if you parse this out, this is exactly what Answers in Genesis has been saying since its inception. It all comes down to whose testimony, whose word do you believe? The real argument here isn't whether we trust you know, science versus faith. It's whether we trust man's word or God's word. The world and many in the Christian community seem to be taking the broad way towards siding with a naturalistic pagan explanation for our existence. While there's a narrow contingent that holds fast to the authority of God's word. So pastors, parishioners, parents, young people, don't be deceived by false teachers. Be careful which Christian, academic, and teacher you listen to and accept instruction from. Be careful what colleges you support and attend. Satan is cunning. He understands that a Christian organization is often much more effective at indoctrinating believers towards faith-destroying beliefs than atheists are. After all, Satan has been known to quote scripture, although he twists it, right? In Matthew 4, 5 to 6, Psalm 91, 11 to 12. But let's face it, many sincere and God-fearing believers have come to many different conclusions about certain doctrines, baptisms, eschatology, like we talked about, and observance of days, to name a few. But mature Christians in various camps still break bread with one another in Christian unity because they know that their differing beliefs are rooted in a sincere reverence for God's word. They're arguing over what scripture means in context. So calling someone a heretic or false teacher because they have a different conclusion regarding doctrine, well, that's a dangerous proposition because sincere believers can simply be sincerely wrong. And this is why Answers in Genesis has always made it very clear that we don't consider those that have accepted Christ as their Savior, but don't hold to biblical creation to be apostate or suggest that they're, you know, should be cast from the kingdom, so to speak. Now, although we have been continuously accused of that over the years, um, whenever we've challenged those who've leveled this accusation to provide a written statement or, a, or an article or presentation from Answers in Genesis staff making that declaration— They've always been unable to produce one. We've gone out of our way to repeatedly say on record that we do not assert that belief in a literal, we prefer the term plain or straightforward reading of Genesis, is a salvation issue. We understand that, you know, those we consider to be in error concerning their interpretation of Genesis are quite different from false teachers. That's not what we're talking about. But having said this, Romans 16 identifies biologos as a house of heresy and false teachers by their own contributors' words, who openly and admittedly teach contrary to what the apostles, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, Jesus, have taught. So anyone 
who's been deceived into believing these false teachings that have been coming from this group needs to repent, return to the authority of God's word, starting from the very first verse of Genesis, because there's no greater authority than God. There's no reason to put yourself at risk on judgment day as being counted as supporters of false teachings. Once again, if you're appreciating this content, please visit theanswersingenesis.ca website, consider donating to the ministry, and whatever platform you're accessing this on, it's got all sorts of ways that you could support our ministry, such as clicking a like button or subscribing or sharing or maybe doing a review. We'd really appreciate you taking the time to do that because it's probably the number one thing that you could do to help continue to help us to do outreach. So until next time, I'm Cal Smith. Blessings to you and yours. Thank you.